Hello. Um, welcome to your first game. Uh, well, not really, but that's what the talk is called. Um, I am here with uh, Mu Yu from uh, Foam Sword Games, who make Knights and Bikes, um, with Karen Teixeira, yes, um, who is working on the Wolf's Bite, and with Ricky Haggett from Hollow Ponds, uh, who is working on Loot Rascals. I shouldn't have needed to even look up and check. <laughs> um, I'm Philippa War. I work as a journalist over at Rock Paper Shotgun. And we are just going to sort of dive into things that might be useful to know about creating a first game or a debut game in other circumstances. So if you've formed a new studio or if you've gone indie, things like that. Um, if you want to tweet about what we're talking about here, feel free to do that. And there is a Guru Live hashtag if you uh, could to that that would be super awesome and we'll be having questions at the end so just flag someone down with a microphone uh, when they start roving and hopefully we can answer helpful useful questions um, but first if we do a bit of context starting with Mu do you want to intro your trailer for Nights and Bikes? Sure yeah so I'm Mu um, I'm the programming half of Foam Sword which is like a two-person working from my kitchen London based um, games company it's our first game is called Nights and Bikes, which is sort of an adventure following two girls exploring this fictional island of King Percy. Um, so it's all about a game about capturing childhood imagination and all the kinds of things I remember from a kid in the 80s and growing up. So riding bikes, getting into trouble, finding treasures, that kind of stuff. Um, and we came up with the idea in late 2013 and didn't really start working on it properly until we did a Kickstarter campaign, which ran about a year ago. And that went well. And now we're being published by Double Fine Presents. Uh, Karen, what are you working on at the moment? Do you want to intro it? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, I'm Karen. Uh, I'm working <laughs> on the Wolf's White with two other people, um, Dave and Eric. And this is basically our, our first game as an Indies, um, first like release game, hopefully, <laughs> we're still working on it. But the premise is basically it's this um, kind of um, competitive local um, choose your own adventure game that you'll be playing against a friend. So it's a very short game. The premise is that you'll be playing as big bad ball for the three little pigs. And <laughs> during the course of seven days, you'll be trying to get the, the wolf's new business, which is the, the restaurant wolf's buy to flourish while the pigs don't want that to happen. So it's during develop, development. We just um, recently, recently um, submitted the game to Steam Greenlight and got really um, a couple of days ago. So we are not super far off from release, uh, but there's still a lot to go. <laughs> love the drawings for that. <laughs> I remember there was one um, a while ago that I saw from, I think, when you guys started posting on forums about it, and it was like the wolf getting ready to like taste some ingredients, and it was just <laughs> the cutest thing. Kitchen wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, what are you working on at the moment, or what have you just been working on? Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I should say probably that um, I was the founder of a studio called Honey Slug, and we made like uh, Hohokam and Frobisher Says and Super Exploding Zoo, and then like I guess 18 months ago or so, I started a new studio called Hollow Ponds with my wife, and um, we made this game called Loot Rascals, which came out, um, yeah, like early March. Um, so, I guess the thing to note is that all of those games are debut games of a sort, but that you guys have been in the industry in various uh, permutations of staffing and studios and things for a while. So uh, why don't we go with your first ever game? Like, what would you call your first ever game? Um, I, 
I think for me it was, um, I was working at like this weird um, web games company in LA. I'm originally from California. This was what, 2001 or two? Um, and it was a time where like, you know, 2001 or two, like the web is still crazy, like anything kind of goes and they were just making these weird games that they had cash competitions where like four people would enter and pay 25 cents each and the winner would win 75 cents. And I made this weird like word guessing game called Password Party and it was just summer internship. Um, and I coded it not knowing really what I was doing and it ended up being the top game on the portal. And they, they were calling me when I went back to school saying like, what did you do? This code is barely working. It doesn't scale. What's happening? Um, and I was like, I, you shouldn't have intern write production games. Like that's, <laughs> that's sort of your thing. Um, so that was probably the first game that I ever actually made. Nice. <laughs> How about you, Karen? Mm. I actually, I was thinking of another one, but actually um, I started back in Brazil working on this um, startup making mobile games. So back in 2011, 2012, uh, we released this game called um, Honey Battle. It's like an iOS game, it's like the, the, <laughs> the smallest thing. But it was, I think, as I remember, it was the first game that I was able to see it to the end and work on all the artwork. So I feel like that would be a first. Okay, and you? <laughs> uh, I started making games on the Amiga and uh, when I was about 12, I made this game called Burble the Dragon, which is like a little dragon going through a maze and he only moves in straight lines. And then when he hits a wall, he stops. And it's just that, you know, that game where you have to go around and find the path to the egg and then get him back to his nest. And I didn't understand, like I'd learned programming enough to be able to make that from just cobbling code together. But like when I had to like have different functions, like every level was basically another set of code. I would just copy and paste the functions and change what I needed to change. It was really, yeah, really basic stuff. <laughs> but good sort of a, a, a foothold to start mm. building on. Um, one thing that came up when uh, the three of us were talking before was that um, every time there's new stuff to learn, whenever it's a debut game of any sort or just a new project of any sort. So I was kind of interested if there was anything that has stayed the same through all of the experiences from that first kind of taking your first steps, dipping your toes into the industry to the things that you're working on now and also just sort of how you feel you've come on from there? Yeah, I mean, I think the one constant, I mean, it, and everyone says that the one constant is change, but it's like the way that you make a game is always, it's always the same. Like you have a very rough idea at the beginning and you just start going at it and you very quickly realize you have no idea how to do it and you're just sort of like, I mean, everyone, you know, says like, it's kind of like, you know, driving a train while you're building the track in front of it. And I think, you know, even on something, you know, I've been in the industry over 10 years now, and even on something like Knights and Bikes, I constantly find myself just like, you know, Googling, being like, how in the world do you do this? Uh, okay, uh, that You see it on game sense. dev Twitter as well. If you follow enough of them, you start seeing them message each other going, <laughs> why is this broken? What is this thing? And like some pictures of errors and someone will chip in. And that's always really cool because yeah. it's, got that sort of, um, I think sometimes when you look at game development, you can feel a bit, oh, I guess everyone kind of knows what they're doing except me, but it's so reassuring to know that it happens every time, no matter how long you've been in the industry, there's always a thing that you're stumped by and really need to, to figure out or to have other people come in for. Um, but yeah, so if we go back to the idea of the game in its first state of, of having that first idea and then somehow needing to figure out whether A, it's even a game, but also what you want to do with it, how you, how you pin that down into a, 
usable form and pursue it. So, Ricky, maybe how do you approach that? I think there's always some kind of hook. There's always a thing that's like, this idea is cool enough that I want to even do anything with it at all. And, I, I, you know, you, you make that thing, and it's usually quite a quick, easy thing to make, hopefully. So with, with Loot Rascals, it was a, um, my friend Nat teaching me about lots of card and board games, and then us going, well, there's, there's loads of amazing mechanics here. Let's make a video game out of this, and then making it literally out of cardboard and paper on a, and just pl playing it a bit on a pub table. Um, and then we, we had a thing which just felt cool enough that, like, okay, it's worth programming this now. It's worth me learning about how to, to tessellate hexagons on a screen, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and then I made that prototype relatively quickly in, like, like less than a week. And then from there, it's really shaped by the people I want to work with on that thing. So from there, I, I basically um, thought, well, who would this be a cool thing to work, work with on? And then talk to those people, and then it's like an, a collaborative yeah. from there on. And it's sort of like when you're trying to untangle how you met a really old friend because you're trying to you you can't ever quite pin down where the rest of it kind of slotted into place from. But in an ideal world, it does. It sort of builds on itself and it has momentum, and you can mm -hmm. sort of plug new ideas in and and chat and really get the the thing moving. Yeah, I, I was, like none, none of our none of our none of our games have a game designer credit. Like they have a design panel, and then the people on that design panel are programmers, producers, artists, like they're just people who contributed to the design. There is no like, this is the game designer, the person that writes a document that says what the game's gonna be. That doesn't exist really in my world. Mm. Um, so. When you have something that you want to create, so say you've got your paper prototype and then you want to move it to the next stage, is there a way of finding out what you need to do to start programming that? Is it a matter of sort of testing out a few different engines or scripts or um, asking other people what they've done? Like, how do you, how do you work out what, what the next bit is? Yeah, I mean, you know, from the programming side, I think it's just go at it. And I think you've, it's, it's not even trying to figure out what's the right engine, what's whatever, it's just what do I have handy? You know, what, what do I have that it can sort of test this thing out? Because I think before you know it's a thing that you're going to make, it really doesn't matter. You know, you could try it out in anything and if it's cool here and you think about the bigger picture, you find the right tools to scale that up to something bigger. So for us, it was just, you know, I'd never done anything in Unity before, so I made like a quick little prototype one weekend um, in Unity and sent it over to Rex. And I think the nice thing about having a tool that's, you know, free and whatever is that, I sent him a Dropbox folder of this Unity project, and so he just started adding more stuff to it. So you know, I had a little prototype, and suddenly I loaded it back up, and there's art, you know, the next weekend. And I think that's just sort of the indication of you know the combination of what Ricky was saying. Of one, there's something interesting here because it's grabbed both our interests, but also this is the kind of person I want to work with on this kind of thing, and just when you have something that does have that momentum and excitement that you actually just create stuff just for fun, I think it's it's always a good indication that there's something there. Once you have your core, when do you start bringing other people in? So for playtesting or for fiddling around with other prototypes, things like that. Like Karen, you were saying, I think with the Wolf Spite, you actually did that side of things quite late on. But yeah. did you do you wish that you'd done it sooner? What what yeah, did that bring? It was, it was a weird mix of things because of the way we were working. It took a long time until we had enough variety in that it felt like, okay, we could have a go at, at this and, and give it to other people play. But I, I, I wish it was 
it was a little bit of like, okay, we got way too much variety in then. <laughs> you could have done like a little bit less and then maybe just got enough of the, the mechanics in so we could see if it would be engaging enough or if we would need to add in something else. Because by the point that where we had the, the game and show, showed that to people, what happened is that it's like, all these other ideas came in. It was like, oh, it's a bit too late to add those okay. in now. Yeah, because it's like, <laughs> you know, it would it would take us like a lot of time to just build and just like deconstruct things and put it back together again the way we want it. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ricky and Moo, do you have a different relationship with prototyping or uh, in with terms of sharing? Yeah, I I think it, a lot of that comes down to your own personal level of confidence in your idea and where you think you're at with it. So like. In an ideal world, you know what you've made and you know what's good about it and you know what's not good about it. And you're then sort of testing that theory by showing people. I think the danger of showing things a bit too early is that people don't react to it well and then your confidence is shaken and you worry that, that it's not a cool thing. Um, and that's bad. Uh, and, but, but, like, but as you get more experienced, I guess you... Like, so I guess over time, I would say that I show things to people a bit later because, I'm, because I've got to the point where I, like, I kind of am confident that I'm making a cool thing and I'm not quite ready to show it yet because I know for sure that it will bounce off a lot of people because there's things that need tidying up. It's like, you know, audio design is really important and, and just like really clear upfront instructions is really important and like just making sure that people, you know, and often that's like the last stuff you put in and so it's... These days, I think I probably wait a bit longer. But I think if you're confident in, in that you've made a cool thing, then it can be valuable in, an, in the early... If, you, if you're just starting out making video games, it can be really valuable just to show your stupid half-broken thing to people. And just... Because there's, there's also morale building in, like, watching somebody play a thing you made. And, like, that can be really powerful and exciting as well. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of caveats there. I don't think it's a really straightforward, like you should definitely show your game really early um, thing. Yeah, I think it really depends on what kind of game you're making. I think if, if I was making something very mechanical, it's all about the gameplay mechanic and that kind of stuff, like I'd probably do paper prototypes like Ricky did, but I'd probably bring people in, see if they understand this, if, see if they find it compelling, that kind of thing. But like for Nights and Bikes, like it's a game that's all about feel. And like capturing the feel of being a child is not a thing that you can be like, oh, we put this thing together, do you feel like a child? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, there's so many pieces, like you have to get these characters, you have to do the setting, you have to do all this, like it's so much more complicated. So for that same reason, like I think we were probably on our, our third, you know, from scratch rewrite before we showed anyone. Because the first couple things, it's like, there's some cool gameplay mechanics in here and some cool looking things, but it doesn't capture this feel yet. And I think until we were convinced that, you know, we, we kind of got that, that feel in a bottle, like we, didn't, we weren't gonna show anyone else because there's no way they would, you know, having less context than us, there's no way they would really understand it yet. Okay, and so something that I know that you did do in terms of getting feedback, albeit from maybe from more developers, was you had a, f a thread on the TIGSource forums. Yeah. And so what was that like in terms of getting feedback? Was that a useful source of, of information or was that more just as a, a, a log for you to track what you were? Mm, it, it ended up being a little bit of both because um, back earlier on we, we got some feedback saying that people found it like an interesting idea, unique enough. So it, it was a little bit of nice boost for us to have that. And, and then it became like this log 
Yeah. And then we forgot to update it for ages. <laughs> and then when we submitted to Greenlight, we were like, oh yeah, there's that thread <laughs> on the forum. <laughs> Um, guess we should update that. <laughs> At least it started seeding it for like yeah, SEO. It's always things. useful, yeah. It, it ended up being that because um, um, you were trying to connect people through forums and things that uh, I recently posted on the um, Rempire forum. And I found that people there engaged so much more. And I wish I had done that earlier because people over there are just very so much into narrative driven games or visual novels and those kinds of games that when I when I actually made a thread talking about it. Like, oh, dude, would you guys be interested in this kind of game, etc. And I, I got so much um, valuable feedback. It was, uh, yeah, it was yeah. super nice. Okay. Something like I have cards as well. I was super organized, but it also means that once I've gone off piste, then yanking it back is perhaps somehow slightly weird. The thing that I kind of was interested in going back to the ideas stage um, was what if you have an idea that is sort of too big for you at that moment in time? What if as your first big idea, you've come up with something that is so clearly beyond what you're capable of. Is that a thing that you shelve? Or So to use an example, my game idea is Massively Midsummer, which is a MMO where you solve murders in the English countryside yeah. as one of the Barnaby family of detectives. And ITV licensing issues aside, <laughs> I have absolutely no way of getting started in an MMO. I have no way of understanding how to deal with those branching narratives or procedural detective like work within that. So like how would you even would you just sort of say, okay, just sit down and don't do that? Or or is it a kind of, okay, here are some resources, here is some, you know, do a, a smaller thing from within that? Or, you know, how how would you respond to this if if I was Yeah, I mean I think from my perspective, whenever I approach a project, I make sure that like I have at least one or two things that I that are new to me that I'm going to be learning, um, but I also make sure there's not more than two things that I'm going to be learning. So if, if you know I was taking on a project and I'm like, well, I need to learn you know how to do an MMO and how to write you know a branching storyline and then do a detective thing, I'd be like, ooh, is there is there something like that I could do that takes like one or two of these things and it's a smaller game and I can learn that thing. And once I sort of like game by game built out my skill set and be like, okay, now the new thing is this one other thing that sort of pushes me over. Because um, I know for like Nights and Bikes, like I really wanted to push the storytelling side of me. Um, so you know, I started reading books about storytelling and narrative and narrative structure. And I took a class about you know screenwriting and like got into that world. I've listened to like hundreds of hours of the Script Notes podcast now and that kind of stuff. And you know, I think it's always important for me. Um, I think when I got in the industry, I was really scared because you know I'm a programmer and I met a lot of programmers that were from like the old 16-bit era and you know it's this two PS3 era and they're sort of like their relevance is sort of fading and I just, those were the first people I met in the industry and it just really scared me of just like, oh, does that mean I'm gonna get in this industry and you know, 10 years from now I'm gonna be completely useless. Um, so it's always important to me, like every project I start, there's at least one or two things for me to learn, but not much more than that. So I think <laughs> I'd probably recommend to someone, you know, take a step back, think about what are all these things you, all these cool things you wanna do, pick a couple of them and find something that incorporates a smaller number of them. Are you on that side of things, or are you very much the... Because I think in previous emails, you've been like, oh, no, all the new things. I want all of them. I, I don't know if I'd tackle an MMO. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, yeah like I'm, I'm actually pitching. This is just like a secret way <laughs> of me to get this idea I think, out. I think for your, for, to take your example, I think I would think about what it is that, about the idea that appeals to you. And maybe the thing that appeals to you isn't necessarily the MMO aspect to it, but it's like, like maybe it's the specific setting or the characters or the murder mystery or like the... And there's definitely ways of making a cool game about based on Midsummer Murders that you would be able to make, right? Like, uh, and, 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 and depending on who you are and like what skills you have, you know, whether that's a game that just exists on a piece of paper that you write down, that you just invent in the pub to play with your mates, or whether that's like a computer game with graphics and, and you know, and then if it's graphics, whether it's 3D graphics or it's text or, you know, there's the, the I guess I'm saying that I abstract away the essence of what the idea is from the representation of the thing that you end up with at the end, right? And, and uh, very often the thing that I'm attracted to is just this like quite low level sort of ethereal thing um, so for Luke Ruskell's, it was, hey, let's make a kind of boardy card game mechanic thing with Dave, who does all the art and um, uh, of the sort of silly characters. And, and like, that was the sort of core. We're making a silly space game with Dave, and it's going to be sort of roughly related to board and card games. And then everything else was kind of up for grabs. And I think that's probably okay. true of the other things I've made as well. I mean, certainly there were lots and lots of versions of Ho-Hokum which weren't Ho-Hokum, which were just me and Dick just feeling out the experience of working together and making stuff, I guess. So maybe sort of working out whether the thing that you think you want to do is you having a, a, a sense of a feeling you want to create, but having dressed it up in just familiar language because that's easy and accessible. But maybe if you rein it in or examine it or interrogate that more, mm. you'll find your way in in a more yeah. simple fashion. Yeah. Okay. And Karen, how would you how would you go about <laughs> tackling well, this ridiculous actually, challenge? We, we did go through a little bit of that with our other project, um, Ocean Heart, which is something I'm working on with Alec Loka. And it's like, we started back in like a couple of years ago. And back then we had the idea of what we wanted to do, but we were struggling with the game design aspect of it. And it just, in a way that was like my dream project, the kind of thing that I would, the kind of game I would like to play and make myself. But I, I knew that, um, I knew where within my skill set I was missing the like <laughs> game design, a little bit of game design. I'm not as experienced as a 3D artist. I've um, been doing that only for a couple of years, but so it's like knowing that you know sometimes you have to put a little bit more work before getting into that. And it's not right the right time for that project, but it's something that you can put aside and come back to later, and it will still be there. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I ask Karen a question? Yes, sure. Yeah. To what extent does, like, because you're a visual artist, right? You, ma you mainly draw and make things. To what extent does, like, making visual stuff uh, influence the, the thing? It, like, to what extent is it you just drawing a, a cool thing or, like, having an idea for a visual thing in, influence the final, like, the direction of the game? Mm, I, it really does help out with bringing in, like, other ideas and even for gameplay stuff, um, usually. With Ocean Heart, I find that sometimes we get stuck within thinking how something would work, and like, and I just go like and draw a thing because we need to visualize that better. Um, we wanted to have uh, mechanics for like um, harvesting and just like, oh, how is that going to look like? Is that going to be a grid? Uh, but it's so hard to just imagining that. Um, it's so much easier to put that and visually and just to see if that would work or not. It just it it does influence a lot from, yeah. from my experience. 
Yeah, like I think having an artist, having an artist working on in the early stages is a way of like, an artist will just draw a load of stuff and then you look at it and you go, oh yeah, look, you've drawn that. Well, that could just be a whole mechanic and sometimes that, you, that expands out and becomes yeah. a whole big part of the game. It's just because an artist drew a thing, right? Like, it's a, a really, I think it can be a really powerful way to like figure this yeah, stuff out. Sure. I think concept art is really useful for being able to point to a, a particular mood or atmosphere or a particular sort of way of thinking or approaching as well. It's kind of nice to have a, a touchstone almost that you can refer to if you're going off in other directions and rein it back in as well. So sort of preventing that creep, I think some people have found. Mm -hmm. So um, something that I was interested in was uh, in terms of, so Mu used to work over at Media Molecule um, and you worked on like Ratchet and Clank and things. Um, and Karen, you used to work at Bossa, didn't you? Um, who make like Surgeon Simulator and stuff like that. Um, so I'm interested in how valuable you found having that experience to then take to indie? Um, is it a, a pathway that you would recommend? I mean, obviously everyone's different, but is it, what does it bring? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, well, for me personally, there was so much value in it because that was basically like my second, third job, like first time working in a bigger studio. And um, because I, I was able to, to see a couple games get released, just like be there early on from the beginning to the end and just be part of the whole process and see uh, how you know professionals did it. It's just like I learned so much from everyone in there. So a lot of that I, I took with me, even the things that I, I wouldn't agree with or would be like, oh, I would, I would do that differently. Yeah. Um, it's still learning, you know, you should take that with you. So I definitely apply that too. Yeah, I think I probably agree. I, my history has sort of been like this oscillation between like trying to go indie, failing miserably, going back to a big studio, failing to go indie, back to a big studio, so on. Because I think when you're at a big studio, like you're full of confidence, you've got all these like amazing resources around you, people that teach you all kinds of stuff, but you're also sort of, I don't know, protected from your own weaknesses. Like you, like if you're really bad at someone, there's someone in the building that is good at that and they don't let you do it, they let them do it. Um, and then you go indie and you try and do everything yourself and you're like, oh my God, I'm so bad at everything. Um, <laughs> but, but it's good, like if you stayed at that studio for 10 years, you never would have realized all these things you're terrible at. Um, and so, you know, yeah, exactly. And then you go back to a big studio and you're like, okay, last time I was terrible at these four things. I'm going to learn from people here these four things. And then, you know, you learn those things, you get your confidence back up and you go into again and you're like, oh my God, there's so many more things I'm terrible at. Um, and like, I think, you know, Nights and Bikes is sort of the first time that I feel like the rate at which I'm discovering I'm terrible at things and the rate that I'm overcoming things is like, almost matched, you know, like I might actually make it over the edge. Where it's a one in, one out policy exactly, at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great, um, where I think, you know, some of my other attempts, it was just like, it was just so overwhelming that it's like, well, I tried it and now I know what I need to learn next and I need to go get a job and, you know, work at a studio for a while because I can't really deal with facing all my, you know, all my weaknesses and worst issues every day on my own. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think, I think, yeah, big studio experience is, is incredibly useful and I would recommend it to anyone. And I probably will have, you know, some more of it in my future, to be honest. Okay. And so one of the things that I think you were saying, actually, specifically um, 
that you had found when you went indie, uh, maybe this most recent time that you were not strong at, was the whole, oh, I've been backseat designing all my life, yeah. but I have to design now? <laughs> oh, that, that is apparently not the same thing. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really harsh because, yeah, it's like, you know, I play all these games and I'm just like, oh, these games designers, like, this doesn't make sense or, like, this story is nonsense. What? And, you, and then you go and you try and, you know, actually, you know, build a coherent game design that, you know, that you can actually present to players and make sense and builds and progresses. And it's so difficult. And, like, <laughs> there's so many th situations you get into and you're like, okay, well, you know, I thought it was just going to be this trivial thing of, like, the obvious thing here and here is is different but you know especially for knights and bikes like everything is very different like I've played a lot of games where you know you have a combat system and everything's incremental and it's just like oh you know the way you make this better is you give it five percent more damage and in knights and bikes it's a game about role-playing like proper role-playing and it's not the same thing like every different ability you have has to be a new adventure in these children's minds and it was just so hard for me to be like well i'm like well you know she's got you know these little boots and she kicks things and she's got a stick and she hits things and I'm like that's the same thing like it's kind of whatever <laughs> and so like one of the recent weapons we had is like she's got a weapon which is like a, a sink plunger you know to like unclog the sink or you know toilet or whatever and like i was like well what could she do with that and like one of the things was like well okay so like she can throw it at people and like suck them and pull them back towards her and then what else could you do with that and I actually thought of like when I was a kid we had these little weird toys called poppers and you like flip them into oh, I know, yeah. flip them, and I was just like and they'll eventually like yeah, ping off exactly into the, yeah. and I was thinking of like the, the base of a plunger is kind of like one of those so like maybe we can make like little landmines out of those and like I'm like oh great and that ties together because then you put like a landmine down and you like grab the enemy and you pull them onto the landmine <laughs> and, and it's great like when you have that, those moments of like okay I, I, I'm actually kind of doing some game design but I think when you don't actually have to solve the hard problems, it's so easy to just be like, game designers suck, you know, they should be making better games that I like more. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you actually have to do it yourself, it's, it's brutal. And like, I, I definitely remember, like, I sat there for about a day and a half just thinking about like, what does a sink plunger do? What does a sink plunger do? What does it do? <laughs> and it's just like, and then like sometimes like, okay, sink plunger does this. I'm like, oh, that's too much like water balloons. Okay, well, and it's a weird problem, but it, it is legitimately, such a complicated, you know, really difficult thing that you never appreciate the difficulty of. And I feel so bad for all the design meetings that I've gone into and just made, you know, all these demands of like, so, you know, sort yourself out, <laughs> solve these things for me. Why are we it implementing? It should only take five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Like, why are we implementing stuff and then throwing it away? And it's just like, oh, because they genuinely have no idea if this is going to work until we try it in context of everything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's referring back to that thing of just like, when you're in that studio space and it's someone else's responsibility, it's really easy to complain. Um, but when you have to do it yourself, you have to face how bad you are at it and try and get better and just hope for the best. I am now imagining you sort of at your kitchen table, head on the desk, but with surrounded by plungers, you know. Like the nightmare continues. Rex walks in like, what are you doing? But yes. Um, Ricky, have you got AAA experience? Have you got big studio experience? No, I, 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 know this. <laughs> I worked for a little mobile studio. I think the most number of people was like 25, but it was like sort of 15 to 25. I did that for like eight years, just making a little mobile, lots of little mobile games, flash games, PC download games. Is AAA or is larger scale studio stuff anything that has interest to you for no, any of the reasons? Not, not really. I, like, I think that the scale, so, so like most of the, like Hohokam and Loot Rascals were about the same size team. It was like between 10 and 15, and that feels like about the right number of people, like three, four programmers, and a couple, you know, two, three, four, five 
artists, some audio folks, producer. I don't, I don't have any desire to make anything bigger than that. Like, something that comes up when I'm talking to uh, indie designers or developers, rather, a lot is that one of the things that they really miss having when they're doing it all themselves is someone on the press side of things, on the sort of talking to the outside world, basically, because it's such a demanding and different skill set. So I'm interested in, for example, when people have their game to hand or in some format where they're happy to show people, um, how have you found it helpful to go out and get that attention and also deal with it to, to sort of make yourself not have panic attacks or be terrified by it? Let's start with you. <laughs> uh, I, so I, I, love, I love talking to people and I'm happy to show them their game and, I, and the experience of like showing my game to press and talking to them about it is great and I generally have fun doing that. But it's a huge amount of work and it's quite uh, emotionally tiring and it's also given that you have to schlep across to America three or four times a year to do it and like I've got two kids it's also like it has a, a different dimension of being emotionally exhausting it's like I've got to go to PAX have I okay spend a week at PAX just like hawking your game you know like all the individual chats are great and you know I, I like talking about my stuff it's fine but like there's a there's a degree to which it drains your resources both time and money and like emotional energy I think um, that said how do you I, I'm not sure it's it's that straightforward to employ somebody to be the voice of your game right like I think there's inherent value in being the person that talks about the thing that you're making and I wish I could do it in England a bit more <laughs> yeah there's Bluntly. like there's develop and there's egx yeah. and res yeah and that none of the journalists go to yeah <laughs> i mean i went sure. to res but like if you're if you're but like there's like if you if you're like okay this is my budget for getting yeah. people to write about my game you're not going to spend that budget going to develop realistically you, you're going to go to i don't know pax or you know one of those big american shows e3 where like all of the press in the world come to. Yeah, um, kind of trade-off of it, it's worth it for the yeah. amount of exposure, like mass, the chances right? of yeah. getting attention. Yeah, totally. Um, and what about like uh, not face-to-face, -face, the actual sort of act of sending out the press releases or cutting trailers and things mm -hmm. like that? How did you learn? The trailers we did ourselves. With Ho Ho, can we, we didn't exactly do it ourselves, but we kind of did. Like, we effectively did it ourselves. Uh, with Loot Rascals, we did it ourselves. Just like, you know, there are people who will make trailers and you make footage and there's, a, you know, like, it, it's just another person that you... Um, for us, we just temporarily hired people to just help us with the actual making the trailer, but, like, a lot of the actual work in terms of scripting and filming and all that stuff was just us making the trailer. Uh, talking about the game in a... A distant way is um, well, we so we hired a PR company to like arrange press meetings and send press releases about key things and like get press releases out and deal with like codes around launch. Um, but then there's also just I think there's just a lot of value in just being on Twitter and talking about your game to some degree, right? Like that. Yeah. I think without that, it's hard to uh, to like get people to care. I guess. I think 
think Screenshot Saturday has been a, a real sort of boon for helping me uncover things that I didn't know existed or that are sort of visually interesting. So I think things like that and um, I trawl Itch.io and things like that, but uh, that's not the norm. So I think the Twitter hashtags that people are using and things that might get retweeted as a result is a good thing to be aware of. But how about you two? Anything on that? Yeah, I think the, the scariest one for me was definitely the Kickstarter launch press release because, you know, like everyone said, journal, like, you know, I've, the number of talks I went to were journalists like, don't send me your Kickstarter press release. Like, I just, <laughs> we just don't care. And like, on top of that, like, you know, I, I think I really enjoy the face-to-face the -face stuff like Ricky does, like, but you can always feel like what they're responding to and what they're not and adjust accordingly. Or when you're just blasting out a bunch of emails, I mean, firstly, like being a new company, not having a press list, you know, we just sat down and went to every website and been like, where's their contact email? Where's their contact email? Who do we know? Who do we remember? Um, that kind of stuff. And you just sort of, you, you write these, you write like, you try and personalize the ones you can and some of them you can't and you blast them out. And it's like, it's weird because I feel like a lot of journalists don't respond. Either, you know, something shows up on their site the next day or you hear nothing back and no nothing ever happens. And because of that, you don't really get the feedback of like, what did I do well? What did I do wrong? Who's actually responding to this? Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what we could have done much better there. I mean, it, it did work out for us. Like a bunch of, you know, sites did write about us. And um, I was funny, at Res, we were on a podcast and I was talking to um, Mike Diver from Vice. And I'm like, oh yeah, and you guys wrote about us on day one. He's like, no, we don't cover Kickstarters unless they're already past there. I'm like, you did. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think it's like, for us, it was just trying to tell this story about like what this game is, why we're making it, you know, and... You know, the Kickstarter, it wasn't, definitely wasn't, the headline wasn't the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter was like the, the last thing at the end of like, by the way, we're on Kickstarter. It's like, so we were just pitching a game out there. Um, but yeah, I definitely found it hard. Um, you know, we definitely sent drafts to other independent game studios and said like, what do you think of this? You know, do you think people are going to respond to this? But, you know, and, and got some feedback from that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I find that way harder than the face-to-face -face stuff, for sure. Um, yeah, with us, it was like, I don't think, we, we had an idea that it would be time consuming, but it, it always ends up being way more time consuming than, than you're prepared for, um, especially with the three of us. We all had side jobs and things going on. So it was like, at some point, I think I was doing just marketing stuff for weeks and weeks. Because yeah. uh, there's also marketing art. Because <laughs> you know, you've got to put some images in those tweets. And that takes time. That takes an awful lot of time. Um, also going through, you were having a lot of trouble just like finding press, finding lists, finding things, um, press lists that were not updated and just like checking all the links and then drafting the things. Yeah. It's just, it, it got very overwhelming very fast for us. And, and a lot of things happen that you, you, you try to plan as, as better as you can, but that would be like always uh, <laughs> things you, you were not expecting. <laughs> There are, um, there are tools which are really useful, certainly from the journalists trying to find resources side of things, like um, Rami put together the press kit stuff that people can just sort of plug into, you know, it's like, it, it basically gives you a checklist, doesn't it, that you need to fill in of, here are the studio details, here are the contact details, here's the pitch for the game, here are the screenshots, here's the YouTube trailer. And someone like me who is trying to find information and only has a limited amount of time can actually pass that really easily and, and pick out the salient details and find 
what I need rather than having to scrub around and maybe not be able to find the email address or not be able to find a picture that's high resolution enough to even use on the website. And so something might just slip off the radar for those reasons and it's just housekeeping. So that kind of stuff is, is super useful. Um, in case it helps, um, in terms of the games mentioned here, I have definitely, I was going to write about Loot Rascals because I was really interested in the refinery edition um, idea, which was essentially your early access uh, version. And people could sort of buy it and uh, you would use their feedback and, and information to refine the game uh, in the process of just pre-release. And I thought that was sort of interesting enough that I wanted to make sure that we had it on the site. And as it turned out, Graham already happened to be writing a news yep. story. So that was, you know, that's how that ended up, I think. Um, and for Nights and Bikes, I don't think I saw anything in my inbox, but um, it was because it was causing a real sort of stir on Twitter because it was so shareable and so beautiful and there were GIFs that had real sort of sparkle to them. And it was just so appealing that I wanted to find out more. And the Kickstarter itself was essentially just this really spirited, I would say go look at it because it's so good. Um, so that's how that came to be on my radar. The one that I'm not sure about was um, the wolf spite. I know that Alice has written about it, but I wasn't sure what you'd sent to her in terms of information. Was it like a screenshot and a news? I'm not blast, sure. Because it was Eric doing that. <laughs> oh, don't worry. It's fine. I was just curious. But I think I think it did. We had a press kit, and I think um, she was probably a contact, maybe. Mm. I think because it's, uh, it's an interesting idea as well. It was kind of um, the only other game that I could think of that had done something similar was the Yorg, and that it, it was in a co-op rather than competitive space. And so it was, I think it would, if I had had a press release for that, that would have been my way in. But images certainly help. And also targeting the person, because I get sent things that start off with sometimes it's basic stuff like the wrong name or you know the wrong website but sometimes it's hi Philippa I thought that you would be super interested in our horror game it seems totally up your street and I'm like I am the one person on the site to not send that to ever <laughs> like so and I appreciate that that's all extra work to find out what people are into but I think if you have a sense of where your game fits in terms of genre, you can certainly work out who is writing about those things on a website and is super excited about them if it's a, a, a flagship website that you desperately want to catch the eye of. It, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, because I mean, for example, like I know during the Kickstarter campaign, like one of the best um, performing, you know, write-ups that we got was from Polygon because, you know, Kickstarter has your conversion analytics and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, we had loads of contacts for, at Polygon from, like, our previous company and stuff like that, and we sent all of them. Um, but, like, I'd never, you know, met Allegra or anything like that, but, like, I followed her on Twitter, and it, she was, you know, playing games that were kind of Knights and Bikes-y, and so I just, like, well, I might as well, you know, just shoot an email to her as well, just because, like, I know she likes things like this, and she was the one that ended up following up, and I think during our Kickstarter campaign wrote two articles about Knights and Bikes and did an interview with us and all this kind of... So, yeah, I think it does pay really big dividends to, like, actually, you know, get to know journalists as human beings, and, you know, they have interest and taste and, like, to... You know, like, I think also, you know, send abroad, you know, 
hopefully someone will see this <laughs> and like this um, because I don't know who you are, but also the ones you know that you do think you know are interested in the kind of things that you're interested in making. It's good building those relationships, getting them, getting to know them, and making sure to like send a pitch to them that you know tells them that you know I understand what you're interested in. And here's why I think you'd be you know into our, our game. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I think the, the simplest, easiest thing you can do is make a good GIF. And I don't think there's that much pressure on the GIF communicating that much about the game, necessarily. It can just be a cool thing that someone goes, oh, look at that, that's good. And then if you then tie back to that in some way, so like for Luke Ruskell's, it's like the teapot guy. Everyone likes the teapot guy. And so a bunch of journalists were like, oh, yeah, I've seen that guy on Twitter. Yeah. And so then you you there's immediately like a thing that, that sort of happened there like they're already you don't you've already kind of done you've you've half opened the door I think when 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 you find get to that point of like oh yeah I I'm aware of that from Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean if at the risk of ruining my inbox forever and ever um, the things that I tend to respond really well to are just really eye catching imagery um, because my my particular niche on the site is artwork and art games and sort of those small experiences. So if you made something sort of weird and beautiful and art toy-ish for a game jam, then I seem to be prime target <laughs> for, for that. And in a, I'm really positive about people doing that. And similar with, um, it'll probably apply less to debut games, but esports, um, that's my other niche on the site. And so if it's language around that and imagery and, you know, events type stuff, that's also... Um, a way in specifically for me. Um, but yeah, that's the press though. So with, um, with showing people uh, on, for example, a show floor, uh, how do you go about um, cutting a demo? So, because it, it's such an extra sort of weird workload and it's a slice of the game, but it's kind of not really anything to do with the game also because it has to have its own flow and shut off at particular points. So if we do this and then we can like open it up to, to people querying things, if you'd like, if you have any questions, otherwise we can, we can keep going. <laughs> um, I definitely know with Nights and Bikes, um, the way we approached the demo was we made a level and we were like, we should make a demo and we only have one level. Um, so <laughs> let's make it the first half of that level. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, we recently did Brezd and that was great for us. Like um, we, we made like these little miniature, like we bought a bunch of children's bikes and decorated them and made those the seats and they're incredibly uncomfortable, um, which just proves that people really want to play our game. They, <laughs> they dealt with um, the horrible tiny bike seats. I have like the two tricycles in my house still. Um, but yeah, I think for us it was like, especially because we did a Kickstarter thing, like I'm so paranoid about getting it wrong um, because we've made a promise and we've taken the money already. Um, and so it was really important for us to like get a demo out there and make sure like, you know, tell the backers if you're playing the demo, let us know and let us know if like, if this li is living up to the thing that we pitched originally. I think that's like the most important thing to me right now is that we pitched a thing and we're pretty happy with how it came across, but we want to make sure that we're living up to it. And so we want to make sure to have a section of gameplay that was like, well, this is definitely representative of the kind of thing we're doing. And I think it was an incredible relief to me because I think the first time I showed it was at PlayStation Experience in Anaheim, one of these American trips that you have to take um, <laughs> and yeah you know a bunch of backers came up and they started playing and like they were just so excited and so happy and like you know it's a co-op game so they're like yelling at each other and that kind of stuff I'm just like okay like I feel so much better because I know like 
we worked really hard to make this, and if it wasn't at all what they were expecting, I probably just would have had a meltdown and been like, I don't know what, what we're making or what we're trying <laughs> to, like, what did we actually say in that trailer? I, I, I thought this was it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really, it was really rewarding to see them playing and really enjoying it and just, you know, just, yeah, being happy with it. Best possible outcome. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky, how do you, like, what did you do for Loot Rascals? We did a few things. I think, um, so... My general advice, because obviously it massively depends on your game, right, completely. But like my general advice is that like when you go to a big show like, like PAX or whatever, you're just basically being bombarded with every video game yeah. in one massive room. And people coming up to your game aren't really, for the most part, uh, looking to fully understand what your game is. They just want to like ha get a sense of whether your game is a thing they might be interested in. Initially, and like, and so like, so with Loot Rascals, at one point we uh, put people through the tutorial, and that was a terrible idea because no one actually cares how Loot Rascals works in the context of a show. They just want to do some stuff for about thirty seconds, and if they're like, "Oh, that was cool," then they might engage for another thirty seconds, and then if that that's cool, then they might engage for like you know ten minutes maybe. But like, but like making people uh, jump through a bunch of hoops to get a sense of what your game is 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 a less good idea than just not worrying too much about it. It kind of doesn't matter, really. Just drop them in. Don't give them any context. Just let them pick up a controller and just do some stuff and get a sense of what your game is, with the caveat that for the kind of games I'm talking about, I guess. Because there's <laughs> definitely games where you can't do that. But I think that in that direction is probably the right sort of way to go. Okay. Um, and for the wolf's bite, like what, um, how do you approach that? Well, we only. Um, showcased the game in very small um, exhibitions. And, and that was a little bit of a different experience for us because those were usually more chilled. So people would come and just, just prepare to spend some time just going through a game. So we had a demo, which was basically the entire game because our game is like 15 minutes long and it's meant to be replayed because you'll be playing with a friend together. But every time you play, you go through different stories. So it's that's the thing we actually just demoed the whole thing with some of the regions didn't have like the whole um, story. So got some repeated side quests, side stories, events going on. But it was very interesting to see that I, I was expecting it to be too much for people because it's like seven turns, the, the entire game. But you would see like couples sitting and going through the, the entire thing in no rush. So that was really, really fun, actually. That's really reassuring. And you yeah. can kind of listen into their conversations as well Couples and tweet playing things. playing is always amazing because they're just <laughs> so happy to play against each other. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I have to say that the, the best moment that we ever had demoing was we were at PC Gamer Weekender. And like we we're kind of nervous because it's like we didn't know what to expect, but the crowd was mostly like, you know, dude bros. <laughs> um, and then these two little girls come up and they're just like, okay, well, like, you know, our game features, you know, two two little girl characters. They came up and they, you know, playing and like, they're kind of enjoying it. They're like, kind of like having some banter, you know, between each other. But immediately at, at the end, they're like, again! I'm like, <laughs> okay, like you can yes! have another go. And then like, yeah, after like, the, they finished it for the third time, they're almost like, we, we need to go. They're like, no! Again! <laughs> I'm just like, oh, well, that's definitely a good sign for us. Um, but I think you need to listen to your mother. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and the funny thing is, like, they're the only ones that ever had a crash bug, and we found out what the crash bug was, is that they were getting so excited at certain parts that, like, we had this horrible cobbled together thing where my laptop was leaning against the inside wall of, 
of the thing. And when they got excited, they were like kicking their feet and they kicked the wall, which made the laptop fall over and disconnect from the monitor. Oh. And so I was just like, this is so bizarre. But it's just like, it was just good to see them like really enjoying it to the point where like they're physically getting excited and kicking my computer. So, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, beware of kicking, I guess. <laughs> just just move your computer good... slightly away from the wall in the future. Yeah. Oh, right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, did anyone have any questions? Because I think someone was going to rove. Oh, perfect. So you've talked um, a bit about your backgrounds in AAA or um, slightly larger mobile studios. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to share your experiences kind of taking those first steps into your indie projects, kind of coming from that into the indie time, like how you prepared um, emotionally or like in terms of how complete your games were or financially or you know, just those, those, that kind of transitional period? Yeah, so we had a, a really, really long transitional period on nights and bikes. So I think both of us at one point were, you know, just working on it nights and weekends for almost a year. And then I think I was doing four days a week at um, a contract job while we were still doing stuff. And basically, I don't think we both went full-time on Nights and Bikes until we the Kickstarter campaign was already or, over. We signed with Double Fine, and then we both went full-time indie. So, like, we made sure to, like, not put ourselves in a position where we're just adding more stress onto ourselves because of finances or anything like that. But also, you don't, like the first couple times I, I tried, you know, this is I think my third time trying, like the first couple times I went whole hog immediately and just the stress and also just, there's times where you need to let an idea breathe and that kind of stuff and like, it's one thing if you've got a job and you know, you can just let it breathe. It's another thing if like, you just see the bank account ticking down um, and you know, you're just wasting money. So I would definitely recommend, you know, don't go whole hog until you're at a pretty comfortable place. Probably, maybe not as comfortable as we were with, um, with all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's the one bit of advice I'd give. Uh, when we started Honey Slug in 2008, we all got made redundant from that mobile studio. And the redundancy payment basically funded, the three of us decided to start the company. And the redundancy money we got, got us through the first year. And then the second year was a combination of like, my, my wife had a job and so she, her salary was the biggest part of uh, our income on the second year plus just lots of um, uh, little bits of money from like making a flash game for this portal, make a flash game for this ad agency and the whole time for those first two years we're just making loads and loads and loads of prototypes, maybe like 20 little flash games, something like that, some of which went on to be bigger things, some of which, many of which just went on to the compost heap of things that exist in my you know, code base or in my brain. Um, for me, it was like not planned at all. <laughs> so I, I I did decide to quit boss and go indie, but I was freelancing at the same time. And back then, that was a couple of years ago, we were trying to make Ocean Heart work, but that didn't happen, and it didn't have a lot of backup. So by the end of 2016, I was just like very burnt out, and I just had to okay, I need to step back and do some other things and get some freelance and just, you know, go get something because the, the bank account wasn't looking so good, so good. And it was just turning out very stressful to the point where I wasn't enjoying making games on my free time anymore. So I did have that a period of like, okay, maybe I should have stayed a little bit longer, but my quitting also had to do with burnout. I was like, no, I really need to go for something different. So sometimes it, you feel like you do need to just try and see what happens. And um, if you have a backup, something to fall back on, um, 
by all means, just go and try. And Something as a, as a back uh, a backup a follow-up um, question that I had is so there's the financial dimension but there's also the emotional dimension and sort of maybe part way for a project you can kind of get lost in it or you can get really burnt out on it or stuck with it so is there anything that you have found helps with that um, when it's taken over your life but you can't see the way forward with it I I think that, like, I often pitch my game to people constantly. Uh, like, friend, when I say people, I mean friends. Like, you bump into somebody and it's like, oh, we're working on. And then you sort of kind of, your part of your brain goes into pitch mode. And I do that often before I've started making the thing. So someone will say, oh, what are you doing? And oh, I'm thinking about making this game where, and you pitch. And then you could be a year into a project and you'll be like, oh, I've been working on this game where. And th there's something about that which. I mean, assuming, assuming that you can find something good to say about the thing you're making and assuming that the other person's receptive and there's, like, some dialogue that happens, there's something about that that kind of props you up. It's, it, it like, often, like, it's like I'll, like, be, like, spitballing a thing. I'll, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about working on this game where, like, you know, you run, a, you are the organiser of a warehouse, for example, and, like, you start to say stuff and often, like, the stuff you say is, like, just pops into your brain from nowhere. And then people are like, oh, that's interesting. And you start talking about that. And then that's like the impetus you have to even get started. But I think that continues potentially like way down. Um, yeah, it gets it out of the, the brain and into a real world and, and with some actual feedback as well. Yeah, people, people peers, basically. People who are in the same position of like making games, often for money, uh, you know, small developers, just, you know, you, there's a social circle of people on Twitter and in the real world and you just bump into people and you talk to them. And that is probably my biggest source of like... Uh, comfort for the soul, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd probably say the same thing. Just, you know, having that support circle, like, of, like, especially other people that are going through the exact same thing. Like, I have a lot of, you know, independent developer friends, and it's, like, you always feel so alone in those moments, but then you ever talk to any other ones, and they're going through the exact same things <laughs> in you. It's, like, it's just, you know, a room of 20 people alone, and it's just the weirdest thing ever. Um, but I think it's really important just to, like, yeah, have those people to talk to when you're going through the hard times, because they're always, you know, either, either they're going through it right then or they've been through it, um, but also having, you know, like, you know, the support structure of family and friends and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, my wife is in the audience right there. Like, she's always been very supportive of, you know, especially, like, the times where I've crashed and burned. You know, it's, it's never been like, oh, you messed this up, whatever. It's, it's always just like, you know, you're trying your best, you know, just keep going. And I think it's, it's, it's hard, but you just have to, like, you know, find a way to have other people give you the energy when you can't find the energy yourself. Like, I definitely know, like, BAFTA crew is one of the programs that's helped me loads through through all this process. It's just like at least like every couple months there's an event where everyone comes together and you all get to like remind each other that you're all struggling through the same things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think yeah. And there's also like hubs and things you can look up like local game um, developer hubs and there's things like like you're saying there's BAFTA crew, but there's also you know Twitter. There's also particular forums. There's meetups and things like that, which are super valuable. I think in terms of Getting out of the house as well, because that's one of the dangers. It's just like, how long have you been in this room? <laughs> um, but yeah, any more questions? Hands are oh, awesome. <laughs> Someone will be accosting you with a microphone. <laughs> Hi. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think it's fair to say that all, none of these games are really an oversaturated genre. So with, with that in mind, um, what did I say? Yeah. With that, with that in mind. Uh, 
where do you feel like you really found your inspiration or uh, innovation, I guess, and, and how did you, in particular, how did you manage your scope to turn that inspiration into a reality? Go on, Karen. <laughs> yeah, Karen. <laughs> what? Um, in regards to the wolf spider, actually, it's a, it's a little bit of a different experience because uh, um, Eric was the one that had the idea and he needed an artist and he contacted me. But back at the beginning, he was like, I, I had played the yog before and, yeah. and he had pitched this as a, as a kind of like competitive yog kind of game. And I thought, that was interesting. I would have like a lot of yeah, just just approach me and go like, oh, you can do whatever you want with the art. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> work on this. Um, but slowly, it felt like we we synced very well together, and everyone took on the role of game designer, and it, and it was very very organic that way. Um, so I can't say much about you know where, where it came from because it was mostly um, him, but I did get to add um, my own ideas and suggestions to the game. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to something Ricky said earlier about your, your midsummer MMO game, is that you, you pretty much <laughs> have to find the one or two things that are the thing that matter most to you and just build everything around that. So I think there was two things for us. Like, I think Rex really wanted to make a game that was about childhood and you know everything from the eyes of a child, and then I wanted to make a game that was um, that you could play with someone. Like, I, I definitely had a dark time in my life where I just used games as a way to keep people away from me. And then I remember when I was a child and I played so many games and that was how I made all my friends. And like to me it's really important that I make a game that helps people, you know, bring them towards other people rather than keep them apart. And so I think because of these two things, you know, like childhood and, you know, playing games with other people, we sort of came up with, well, the obvious theme is friendship and now we're making a game about friendship and co-op and that kind of stuff. And so we just sort of said like these two things are critical, everything else can go. Um, and so we just, you know, everything we build is around, you know, the idea of these two girls and them being friends and them playing together and, you know, going on crazy adventures together and that kind of stuff. And I think there's lots of other scope, like one of the, one of the weird scope creep things we did. Um, and I kind of regret it now, but, you know, we, we, we confirmed it as like doing online co-op. Like that's a huge beast of, of a task. Um, but I just remembered, you know, when I played, played games as a kid, like Secret of Mana was, you know, a game I played with my friends, you know, at least once a year for like probably 15 years. And now all those friends are in America and I can't play Secret of Mana with them. And I was just like, you know, I could fly out there and play Nights and Bikes with them maybe, but it's just like if we had online co-op, I could definitely like, you know, find a way to play this with them once a year. And it just <laughs> became this really important thing for me. Like I obsessed over it just because like I want to play with my friend Jacob. And, you know, like the only way I can do that if I, is I, if I add online co-op, even though that's probably like three months of work. Um, but, you know, it, it just, I don't know, it just reminded Jacob's me. Jacob's a really good friend. Though. Jacob is a very good friend. Um, but yeah, it, yeah it, it goes back to that, that, you know, that pillar of just like, it brings me back to that time when games were a thing that connected me with other people. And like, I just wanted to like pay the sufficient uh, homage to like, you know, the, the fondest memory I have of that, you know. I wish I could just make a game that was a solid, oh yeah, this is just one of those games. <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> I don't think I have it in me. And, and, and like, how, how do, I guess your question is like, how do you make a big old mess, but still have it be coherent? <laughs> And I guess you just, it's just an iterative process of adding things and taking things away and having a sufficiently long period at the start where you're open to adding things and taking things away and having a, uh, a like, uh, a, 
in our case, for Luke Ruskell's, it was Slack, but in with Hohokam, it was me and Dick sitting in the British Library, but like a structure in which you can make uh, informed decisions about adding things and taking things away that's kind of scientific and like you're thinking about an end result, but is also uh, sufficiently, I don't like the word whimsical, but whatever, you know, sufficiently like broad that you can just go, oh yeah, well, what the hell? Let's bring this in and put it on, put it in the game. And that involves lots of code being written and then thrown away, and it involves lots of art being made and then thrown away. And hopefully the people who are doing that uh, are like a small team at the start who are comfortable with that process of just like, we're just going to add loads of stuff and throw things away and add things, and then uh, it's going to gradually shuffle this thing around, and oh, now we've got something that makes sense, and what is it, right? And yeah, it would be so much easier to just make a first-person shooter, though, wouldn't it? Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe the next one. <laughs> Something that I would add is just for any creative project, I find it really helpful to have a course statement or an artwork or something that I can just return to when something seems to be spiralling a bit out of control, whether it's a feature that I've gone in about five different directions with and I need to go back to either the first paragraph or even just the headline and go, that's a completely separate article, cut that out, just stop, stop faffing over here or if it's uh, a painting or something just sort of not getting distracted by detail rather than the whole it's I, I just find it helpful to have a mood or a statement that I can go back to again and again um, I think we've got time for one more really quick like question so uh, shall we go you yeah. <laughs> uh, orange top which by the way good choice <laughs> I did a uh, engine architecture module this year, and one of the first things the lecturer told us was that if the game looks really good, but it, it's really laggy or it's buggy and it's glitchy, people still play it because it looks good. So, like, you've talked a bit about artwork, like you sent off your Unity project and it came back with artwork and, and you're an artist and your game looks really good. So what, would, what do you have to, like, say about that? kind of thing like how important do you think artwork is to like the, a first game yeah i mean i i think it's critical i think like as you know a gameplay programmer like you know historically like working with someone like rex and making the art that he does like i always know that as a backup in the worst case even if this game isn't fun at all like we've seen people like you know even in the demo that we've brought to shows like they'll just walk around and look at stuff and be like, oh, this is really cool. Like, obviously, like I always, I, I always think about. People always have this argument of like, if people are incredibly talented at something, is it worth dealing with their terrible personalities? And I always say like, it'd be better if they didn't have a terrible personality. <laughs> and in the same way, it's like, it's it'd be much better if the game looked great and played great. But I think you know, having great art, you know, you know, visual art is something that we all appreciate regardless of the format. And I think having a game with great art can patch over other things. But obviously, you know, I. I aspire to, you know, pull my weight and make sure that, you know, the art isn't saving this project from the horrible stuff that I've done. But yeah, I definitely think that it is a very powerful thing. I think that, like, it, it definitely adds up a lot because it, it's, it's so competitive nowadays, so hard to stand out. So if you've got a good looking game, it will be like the first thing that makes someone stop and go like, oh, okay, oh, hang on, this looks interesting. And it's just like, the rest of the game needs to win them over because the art alone is not going to... Most of the time, I don't think it holds players that much. 
Um, it helps you get your foot in the door, especially yeah. with things it's like Twitch streaming or YouTube as well. If someone's just scanning through like what people are playing right now and yours is like this really bright, interesting, cool thing that they haven't seen before, like that might be a way of helping. But again, it depends on the kind of game as well. Like If it looks good in a GIF. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back to GIFs. <laughs> I, I don't want to get all like 60 frames a second is important. <laughs> right, but I do think that a big part of what makes a game feel good is the is the magic that happens between you, the player, doing a thing and a thing happening on the screen. And I think that that's partly its art and partly its animation, partly its audio design. But like a thing that's laggy, I'm specifically yeah, you were saying like yeah, like I think a thing that's laggy immediately feels like you're already not in focus with that stuff. Like. Like, I think that, yeah, like, I think game feel, that moment-to-moment, that -moment, like, this feels good, is the thing that, like, I think you can basically make a thing which doesn't really, is, is mechanically derivative or weak. Uh, but if it, if, if it has a visual style that really speaks to, like, the, the thing that it's trying to be in it, and, and, the, and the experience of, like, pressing a button or moving a stick means that a thing happens on screen which feels amazing and magical, then that gets you over a lot of hurdles, and it's a good thing to strive for as a first thing. It's like, ah, the first five seconds of doing <laughs> this thing feels great. Yeah. And like, I think if you don't have that, then it's worth getting to closer to that point before you then make a load of stuff or whatever. Like, Do you remember all those think pieces about Destiny, which are like, oh, I don't really think it's a great game, but I really, my fingers seem to just love <laughs> playing it. <laughs> Why have you betrayed me? <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, I don't think anyone ever quite put it like that, but they should have. Um, I think that that is all the time that we have for this specific section, uh, but I will be hanging around in there if anyone has, like, journalism-type questions and I don't know about you guys if you're sticking around but um, I don't want to like throw you under the bus if you'd like to just hide um, <laughs> but uh, also uh, there's more Guru Live stuff happening uh, I believe tomorrow so feel free to either like come back if you are booked in for that but also to check it out by the hashtag and things like that but thank you for coming